say we left off on harm must be removed does anyone recall who was here anyone who was here uh, yeah harm must be removed Darar Yuzal yeah we talked that's right we talked about Bida'a Sinai and Fatima and all that okay maximum three harm must be removed so we're still in living Islam with purpose by Dr. Omar Farooq Abdullah Hafidhullah Ta'ala wa nafa'allahu biyahu biyulumi fiddarain ameen and uh, in it he presents five operational principles for how we engage with our religion. The first of those is to trust reason, trusting reason. The second one is respecting dissent. The third one is uh, emphasizing societal obligations. And the fourth one is setting priorities. And the fifth one is embracing maxims, embracing legal maxims. Living Islam with purpose. Dr. Omar Farooq Abdullah, you can find the PDF online. So now we're in the last section which is the section on embracing maxims and he's talking about these five legal maxims that are agreed upon by all of the schools that uh, things uh, things are known by their objectives and uh, cer- certainty is not removed by doubt harm is to be removed and uh, custom has the weight of law and the f- fourth one is uh, difficulty necessitates alleviation. We'll see how he translates it. Um, so we're on maxim three that harm must be removed. So he says, This maxim is central to the operational principle of setting priorities. As noted earlier, the essence of Islam is to secure benefits and ward off detriments. But by only mentioning harm and not benefit, the, word, the wording of this maxim stresses the priority of removing harm. As indicated earlier, the imperative to ward off harm, ward off detriments takes priority over the acquisition of benefits when the two are mutually incompatible. So the principle is Darul Mufasid Muqaddam Ala Jalbun Masalih. That if you have a situation and uh, you have to choose between bringing something that's beneficial, acquiring a benefit, or preventing a harm, preventing the harm takes priority over acquiring the benefit. Okay? It's the general rule, and in, in the, uh, there's you know sometimes some exceptions and stuff, but the general rule. Anyways, he's saying that this emphasizes the importance of uh, removing harm. He says this maxim on the bottom. Now, this maxim, harm must be removed, obliges Muslims in the name of their religion to identify harms and remove them. It leaves Muslims no justification for ignoring or tolerating harm and injustice in their midst. By emphasizing the necessity of removing harm, the maxim grants priority to the victims of harm, injustice, and oppression. The right of victims is always legitimate, and the harm that afflicts them must be redressed. Um, an important point here is, how do you determine what is harm? How do you determine what is oppression? How do you determine... All of those things are things that have to be determined. Wh- what is oppression and what isn't oppression and so on. And um, so that's, you know... <coughs> were aided in by by the revelation in that endeavor. 
In the prophetic law, all that is harmful from harm's greatest to its least manifestations is unacceptable and must be removed. Muslim legal scholars define harm in broad terms. If the law should err when determining what constitutes harm and what does not, it must err on the side of leniency and inclusiveness. Um, actually, in, uh, in fatwa it often says that... Is it going, Abdullah? It stopped? Oh, Mahdish. It's okay, I mean... If it stopped, then, you know... It stopped. Yeah, okay, then I guess just hit live video and figure it out, I guess. They always have the podcast they can go. Yeah, anyone who wants to. If, if there's any messages. Alhamdulillah, Facebook, I told you guys last time that I put Facebook now in my phone under the adult websites. It's wonderful. Because what happened was I would have the app and then I would delete the app to try to save myself. And then after I delete the app, I would go and look in my, I would open the browser and look at it through the browser. <laughs> so now I added it to the adult websites. Actually, I didn't add it. I, well, I guess it's an ad because I turned on the adult website filter and then put it in the adult website. So now there's no Facebook. There's no, fa I put Twitter too and I added Instagram too. It's great. So it's been an amazing week. So, uh, harm must be removed. Who are you talking about that? There's a principle in fatwa, actually, that they say, Like, there's different, there's different uh, wordings of it. But the principle is, if someone's giving a fatwa, it's better for them to err on the side of leniency than to err on the side of making things harder. That, you know, if, you, if you're not sure, it's better to err on the easier side. Sufyan Athodi, who we were just referencing, Rahimullah, has a beautiful quote about that. That he says basically, like, true fiqh is to understand where there are leniencies in the religion and to give them. And everyone, everyone can make it harder. That's easy. If making things harder is easy. Everyone can do that. But to know where there's leniency and, and, and ex you know, put it in its place is, is good. Another relevant maxim states, need will be put on the level of necessities. We talked about that before. And hajatunzal, manzinat al-dururat. Basically, a need will be put on the level of necessities. When we talked about necessities are things that life and limb is, is, is predicated upon. And needs are things that life and limb aren't predicated upon them but they make life more tolerable and easy and stuff so that if there's a general need uh, it can oftentimes then take the position of the necessity there's a lot of detail to that but therefore when there is doubt about the severity of a particular harm it is not required that the victim of that harm prove how severe the harm actually is or whether or not it is actually a necessity to remove it or a need hmm if a spouse is being abused, for example, the spouse is not required to establish that the degree of abuse is greater and not lesser. Even if the harm were actually of a lesser degree, it must be treated as a greater harm and it must be removed. Many challenges currently facing the American Muslim community constitute real or potential harms. Their removal is a definite societal obligation. It is harmful to the community when, for example, mosques promote atmospheres that are narrow-minded and uninviting, 
As previously mentioned, the difficulty many American Muslims face in finding suitable spouses is a great harm, as are dysfunctional marriages and domestic abuse. It harms the community when solutions are not found for disadvantaged Muslims who have no access to good education, cannot find adequate employment, or whose communities lack viable economic infrastructures. This maxim has obvious applications in the wake of the atrocity of 9-11, which brought with it new dangers and revived old ones. On the one hand, the maxim forces Muslims to acknowledge honestly the real and present danger of extremism and ensure that their communities remain free of it. On the other hand, the maxim makes it imperative for American Muslims to increase outreach programs and forge stronger alliances with supportive individuals and groups who have concern for human rights. It also requires proactive steps through civic engagement, media, and other means to give Muslims a human face, bring to light their contributions to American society, and to help avert the potential harms that arise from dehumanization and misinformation. Okay, so basically, remove harm. Okay, maximum number four, hardship must be alleviated. Hardship must be alleviated. Uh, this principle is kind of like, it's recognized that there's a level of hardship in obeying God, okay? So it's not that like anything that's a little bit difficult, we have a problem with it. No, praying on time every single day has a certain level of difficulty in it. You know, it's part of it. There's taklif in, in following religious teachings. But there is taklif sometimes that is higher than that. And when there's a difficulty that is exceptionally hard, then there's facilitation. And this is the idea. To understand this maxim, it is necessary to know that the word hardship used in it is not the same as difficulty. Oh, alhamdulillah. So I just said that. Mm. Islam places high value on purposeful exertion, but requires the alleviation of detrimental difficulty. The preceding maxim, harm must be removed, emphasizes elimination. Harm must be eliminated, not necessarily replaced with something else. The focus of this maxim is different. Hardship must not just be eliminated. It must be replaced with something better. Hardship must be alleviated, often requires the creation of alternatives. And because alternatives are the means by which alleviation takes place. So this is now saying, like, okay, there's, you have to give something else. It's not just you get rid of it. So hardship is not harm. Harm you get rid of. When there's an excessive difficulty, you create some way around it. You create some sort of alternative to it. So, uh, it's hard to go to school without taking loans, right? So the the solution to that is not to say, all right, nobody should go to school, right? The solution to that is to say we need to alleviate this difficulty. There's a difficulty here that needs to be alleviated. And uh, we need to come up with a solution for that, whatever it might be. If you notice from this paper, one of the things that you might notice in this paper is, if I could just stop thinking about things that don't really matter, there's a lot of things that we need to do. <laughs> right? Like that's, that's one of the big takeaways of, of this paper to me, is if you could just stop thinking about and arguing about the same old things that don't really matter a whole lot, then we can actually move on to the things that need to get done and building institutions and spaces and so on and so on and so on and so on and a lot of other things. He says in the bottom of this page, for some Muslims, Islam does not seem authentic if it is not hard. This is very true. You see this amongst people all the time. Islam is not authentic if it's not hard. 
and it's like so so everything is made unnecessarily difficult yeah there's di some things are hard it's fine you don't need to make everything hard uh, you know it's, it's not painful if it's not painful it's not true I mean come on uh, they used to say they always say uh, and Allah uh, ghaniyun an ta'adhibika nafsak Allah ghaniyun an ta'adhibika nafsak that Allah is not in need of you punishing yourself Allah is he's self-sufficient He doesn't need you to punish yourself In order for you to be beloved to Him If there's difficulty, you go through it If there's not, you don't need to make it for no reason Occasionally they adopt unnecessarily rigorous positions That push their psyches to the breaking point Yet the Prophet ﷺ made it clear That Islam is a religion of ease And that suffering for the sake of suffering Is not laudable And does not please God Suffering for the sake of suffering If you're in a situation you suffer That's one thing But just because yeah. The Prophet ﷺ preferred choosing the easier way to do things An authentic hadith reports the Prophet ﷺ was never given the choice between two good things One of which was easier than the other But then he chose the easier of them They're both good One is easier than the other one He chose the easier ﷺ. He used to say certainly the best part of your religion Is that is what is easiest for you That the best part of your Like the best religious practice for you Is that which is easiest for you you know, so maybe someone like du'a is really easy for them, but salah is harder for them. They shouldn't be like, no, I'm gonna stay up all night and do salah. Why don't you just stay up and make du'a? <laughs> like it doesn't. <laughs> you don't have to do that to yourself. It's, uh, and uh, notice that and two things that were good. It's not like two things. One of them's bad and the other one's good or something like. Two things that were good. He chose the easier. The difference between removing harm and alleviating hardship is essentially a matter of degree. <coughs> As demonstrated in the maxim Harm must be removed Islamic law defines harm to include lesser harms When the broad definition of harm is applied to lesser harms The two maxims tend to overlap Taken together They testify to Islam's commitment to reasonable norms That are free of harm And filled with benefit as much as possible And that's what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to develop something And live in a way And engage with our religion in a way That eliminates as many harms as possible And makes things as beneficial as possible You know, sometimes uh, I think for people who come from like We don't always realize Sometimes the things that we have um, I have a friend who's Taken a job recently where like A lot of their job deals with Trying to help people who come from Really tough backgrounds Get through community college And he's like it's so enlightening to like see even even he says like we might come from a family that didn't have a whole lot of money but we didn't have the things these people have like it's it's just a whole different level of challenge and difficulty and and sometimes it's as simple as like you have a perspective on certain things because of revelation that maybe someone else doesn't have you know I was listening don't ask me what it was because it was probably borderline not acceptable but I, I use it as anthropological study to understand the people you know and then it was talking about, uh, actually, if I give you too many details, you'll probably go watch it. But it was like <laughs> certain kinds of gangs in certain areas around this region. And someone was telling, like, talking about their childhood. I was like, man, subhanAllah. You know, like he was quoting the things that his mom would say to him. And I was like, man, like, that's so foul. <laughs> it's just so foul. Like, it's one thing to be rough on your kids. It's another thing to be like... 
the words that are used and the language that's being used and like this is the parent you know and like what's that going to do to the person's everything um, <coughs> so this was like the way of life that we have is meant to ward off harm and facilitate good generally speaking the way of Islam wards off harm and facilitates good sometimes we don't recognize that because we haven't lived in as much harm as some other people have Right? That's why Omar ibn Khattab used to say something beautiful. He used to say that, I fear for a time in Islam when there's no longer people who knew Jahiniyyah. Like, mm. It's interesting. He says, I fear for Islam when the time comes when there's people that didn't, they don't know Jahiniyyah. He's saying like, we the Sahaba, we knew life without Islam and we know life with Islam. So like, it's, it's clear as day for us, right? And eventually they'll become people who like, they take everything for granted because they don't realize, you know, what this is doing for them which is a good thing and a bad thing in some ways but alhamdulillah Allah will always bring people to Islam like Tyson, like Tyson subhanAllah I was just Islam watching I was just watching his interview th- that after the fight clip it's like <laughs> I mean subhanAllah I mean, uh, imagine that the like and when actually listening to Tyson is interesting because you feel the amount of pain that he's gone through you know it's like really uh, Allah make things easy for him Allah give him ease And you also feel like Although he says a lot of crazy things You also feel like there's a lot of good in this person SubhanAllah That's <laughs> really remarkable The following examples illustrate How the alleviation of hardship And the removal of harm may overlap Okay So I think we've gone over these Like some of these Um if you're fa- if you know, you don't have to fast in Ramadan if you're sick, if you're pregnant sometimes, if you're um, if you're traveling, if you're, you know, these are alleviations. Yes. So like picking um like the re- religion is ease. Like what about like um to when you choose harder things, you know? Cuz cuz that's that's different, right? It's a good question. Yes. Okay, I'll repeat it, inshallah. Is it related to that? Okay. خير أموري أو ساتون. That the best of the best of my affairs, the hadith. Best of my affairs are like the middle of them, or the most balanced of them. Um, it's a it's a different narration, but this the thing is there's a number of narrations, right? So and that's why all of these things have to be taken like as a body and you know understood in a context of practice and stuff. Because there's narrations where the prophet takes the easiest of things. There's narrations where the prophet talks about taking the middle way. There's narrations where people will take will purposely do something that's harder you know and in in the tasawwuf and in the spiritual practices and stuff oftentimes they'll yeah. encourage people to have wara or to have this like extra amount of consciousness that oftentimes leads to um restraining but you know that's um a lot of times that's in not doing things rather than doing things 
Um, and and even still, when it comes to that kind of stuff, like there's a reason why people who go down that path were always encouraged to have a teacher when they go down that path. Because there's a lot of people who will go down the path of I'm gonna like have taqwa and I'm gonna have restraint and I'm gonna do the harder thing and I'm gonna be strict on myself and so on and so forth and they have no idea what they're doing and they break themselves. And and they end up going too far and they end up going too extreme and they end up actually usually giving up. But the other narration, right? Uh, that the religion is ease and if someone makes it too hard then it's going to overcome them uh, or in the dina mateen that this this religion is firm so dive into it with rifq dive into it softly and like gently so all of these things kind of like balance each other out um, and like we mentioned before also sometimes you know part of the spiritual path sometimes is not doing the harder thing because you might be arrogant about the harder thing and so you have to, so it's all it's all you know some guidance is necessary. Uh, Sayyidna, do you have anything to add to this? You look like that's the best life right there. <laughs> Don't have to talk, just sitting, making liquid, making sure the child doesn't wake up. Hasbunallah wa nirman wakil. So travelers can combine prayers, right? Um, combining prayers in the masjid when it's raining, certain opinions, some opinions know it. Certain things when like the weather's really cold. Tayammum as a concept, as a facilitation in the, in the case of difficulty. Uh, when, you know, when you don't have water and you make ablution with, I don't know if it's still ablution if you don't have water. It's a problem with words in English that you don't know what they actually mean. When you make purification with dirt or sand instead of uh, instead of water when you don't have water. Um, there's cases of like men aren't supposed to wear silk in Islamic law, but there's cases of companions that had like rashes and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi would allow them to wear silk. So these are all facilitations in the face of um, different things. So then he says, for centuries, prayer times were determined by the movements of the sun and the indications in the sky of dusk, night, and dawn. Today, urban areas are lit at night and buildings often block out the sky. Traditional methods of determining prayer times are no longer easy. In some cases, they have become impossible. To alleviate this hardship, most Muslims today rely on prayer timetables. When flying, it is widely regarded as permissible to pray in one seat by making minimal gestures indicative of prayer and without needing to face Mecca. Given the length of urban commutes in large cities, some scholars allow commuters to combine prayers, although the distances they drive may fall short of the definition of travel. So he's just mentioning these different possibilities. I don't know who holds that opinion, but Dr. Omar knows more than I do. So, you know, lahu ma lahu wa ma So these are all cases, you know. He says, finally, the maxim sets uh, hardship must be alleviated sets a critically important standard for new or lapsed muslims only the most basic obligation should be expected of them and the transition should be gradual and undemanding that's a very important point at the end there you know when someone's just coming back to islam when someone's new to islam you don't just throw everything on them yeah. this is basic basic obligations let's focus on those if they want to do more you know deal with it accordingly <coughs> Maxim number five Custom has the weight of law It's 8.45 Oh, we're gonna go We're gonna go Go, go, go That's what Cat in the Hat says When he rides in the thingamajigger 
<laughs> we're gonna go 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 maximum five custom as the weight of lot so we don't have to really spend that much time on this one because that whole other paper is on this one right the islam and the cultural imperative he says this maxim is the theme of the Noe Foundation paper, Islam and the Cultural Imperative, which we covered before. Um, <coughs> and, you know, he brings that up again. Uh, there's some good things here. I mean, I've been thinking about this one actually the last couple of days in light of um, like the principle is, well, let me say this. Let me read this first. He says the Prophet's attitude toward ethnic and cultural identity provides an example of the application of this verse. He did not destroy the indigenous cultures and subcultures of pre-Islamic Arabia. Rather, he lived in harmony with them, correcting what was unsound and repealing what was degenerate. Uh, perhaps the best example of the Prophet's accommodation of Arabian subcultural norms was his practice of propagating the Qur'an in the seven principal dialectical variations. Ahruf in Arabic. So... There, there were slight variations on the recitation of the Quran that the Prophet them had, and this was like dealing with the different people around there. Each of them can understand it, right? Um, <coughs> his, his precedent basically is to accept things that are good and not change things that don't need to be changed when it comes to culture, and to to beautify as much as one can. Now, what's interesting about that is that generally, kind of like in the uh, you know, the more recent period, not more recent period, the 90s, 2000s, stuff like that. Basically, if your Islam was authentic, your Islam was Arab. Even if you were South Asian, even if you were Central Asian, even if you were Southeast Asian, even if you were Turkish, even if you were, what, well, I guess that's kind of Central Asia, but Nyani. The point is, whatever cultural background you came from, it's not authentic unless it's Arab. It's complete insanity. Right, like these these people. We gave the example before of the whole Allah office thing, instead of Khud office. Like, why do you have to get rid of Khuda? I mean, people use the word for. They they've been using the word in poetry and language and culture and civilization for a thousand years, fourteen hundred years, however many years Islam has been in these places. Basically, fourteen hundred, right? And all of a sudden you came along and you figured out that it was more religious to use the Arabic word. It's not more religious to use the Arabic word. The, the Farsi word is fine. It's not a problem. Right? Or like the way that people dress. Like it's more Islamic to, I don't know, wear a thobe than it is to wear shawar kameez or something. Actually, shawar kameez, in my opinion, is probably, if you want to be more <laughs> technical, it's more, mas it's more satir than, than a thobe is. Shawar kameez is more covering than a thobe is, if you really want to be technical about it. And all of these places, then their their religion and their history and their culture is erased under the premise of like, I don't know, someone else knows better, right? It's complete insanity. And then, but then you come to America, right? Here's where it gets interesting to me, is that technically, you come to America, you embrace the good and you leave the bad, and you build upon the cultural standards of the place that you live in which are lost now, <laughs> largely, in the last 50 years or whatever. Even that's been changed. A lot has changed, right? When I started thinking about, like, okay, so how... Why is it that we... And then I started thinking about... I'll, I'll get to the point. So I think about myself, right? And culture. And that's something that I always say, that when we were studying Arabic, our teachers would tell us that when you want to learn a language, you have to learn the culture. For many of us, the culture of English has no spirituality in it. 
for many of us. Spirituality doesn't have a culture in English. In Arabic, it has a culture. In Urdu, it has a culture. In Farsi, it has a culture. Any language where there is Muslim peoples for a long period of time, there's a culture of spirituality. In English, we don't have it anymore. So like for me, I don't associate... If I want to do something religious, I have to do it in Arabic. Because because I lived in an Arab place and I, I actually have like some connection to that culture in a sense, right? That's my link. So I started thinking like, why is it that... And then I was like, well, even in American society, when people wanted to do spiritual stuff, they all go east. Right? Like, it's all, it's everything is going east because, like, they don't associate it with their own tradition. Right? Whether or not it was actually there at some point or something, is it just, it's just an interesting question, right? Some people are like, so why do you guys, like, have rugs and this, and why can't we just have, like, a table and chairs? Like, it's kind of dry, isn't it? Like, you have a table and chairs, it feels different. But we don't have, like, actually a Western model of something that's spiritual. At least that I know of. There probably is something, but... On the West Coast, at least. I don't in the sou- In the South, they might have some stuff. They might have some Quaker stuff or something. No, got co-opted. Got co-opted, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's just something to think about. You know, like, what does that look like for us? How does that... How do we, how do we negotiate that? All right, conclusion. I think there was something good here, though. Yeah, nothing that we haven't covered before. Okay. If you want to see a good example of this, actually, um, check out, look, look up the Canadian prayer rug. Canadian prayer rug. And check out the project and what they did and the way they thought about it and what they made. Huh? What was that? Canadian prayer rug. Canadian prayer rug. Jude hats. Jude hats are an interesting example of that. The Jude hat. But the prayer rug one is really, really beautiful, mashallah. If you pull it up, you'll see it. Um, Poetry, language, arts. These are all issues of culture. And, you know, these are, um, you know, all of these things we talked about in the other paper, so it's generally okay. Um, Conclusion. Islam is a religion of human rationales and practical objectives. I think you're probably looking for prayer rugs. Did anyone find it? I'll give you a minute to find it. Isn't it beautiful? The 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 way that it's woven takes upon is done with the indigenous the First Nation practices of the people in that part of Canada. The trees that are in it are part of that part of Canada. The Canadian Rockies are in it. The 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 Northern Lights are in it. Um, and they put the whole they they put the wheat there. Right. That's true. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. You're right. It's totally completely ridiculous on my part that I didn't recognize that. Astaghfirullah. Yeah, uh, the the Americas do have a tradition of spirituality. It was just massacred and deliberately destroyed. Right. So they. Um, so the prayer rug is really beautiful. You know, you can have prayer rugs, and it's actually not. It's for that part. Of, it's kind of like for Alberta, actually. It's it's for Western Canada, and you know, it's so they called it 
that, but it's really, and you could have that for all different areas of America. Could have a different kind of prayer rug, right? Like it would have different themes in it. So Southern California might have one, and Northern California might have one, and you know, uh, the South might have a different one. The the American Southwest, you know, like in Arizona, New Mexico would have their own flavor, and uh, could be you could do some really beautiful things with that. So in the conclusion, he says, Islam is a religion of human rationales and practical objectives. Application of the religion and practice must be consistent with them. Islam must make sense, but to make sense, it requires intelligent followers with sound understanding. The five operational principles discussed in this paper, trusting reason, respecting dissent, stressing societal obligations, setting priorities, and embracing maxims, help impart such an understanding and provide the basic guidelines for living Islam with purpose. These five principles leave no further justification for inaction, dysfunction, and mere formalities. They require our community to set priorities, understand the challenges before them, and work at fulfilling their private and societal obligations as effectively as possible. Islam in America has deep historical roots that go back at least as far as the colonial period. Its present development is relatively recent and has occurred over the course of the 20th century. Because the American Muslim community is still young, it has not taken definite shape or adopted hard and fast points of view. As stated in the introduction, the beginnings are the manifestation of the ends. Good beginnings promise good futures. Putting down a sound foundation makes it possible to build an enduring edifice. But the opposite is also true. It is critical for American Muslims as we move forward to lay strong foundations and make new beginnings. Determining the way forward cannot be left to others and cannot be left to chance. At present, different groups and different visions of Islam compete for the American Muslim community's allegiance. The contest of ideologies will probably continue for years to come, but ultimately a particular vision of Islam is likely to predominate. Once a distinctive vision of Islam has been effectively established among American Muslims, a new chapter in their history will begin. That vision, once established, will become Islam's default position in the United States and dictate for generations how the Muslim community understands itself and the world around it. It will automatically set its own priorities and objectives. Once the default is set, it's going to be hard to change it. It's going to things will come from it. It's still being negotiated, but once it sets, uh, it will s automatically set its own priorities and objectives. Ultimately, the vision of Islam that comes to prevail here will be the primary determinant of whether Islam succeeds in the U.S. or fails. If the vision of Islam that finally predominates in America is authentic and wise, it will constitute a worthy precedent and an enduring model for further development. If it is deficient, it will remain a constant obstacle for future generations. Our generation of American Muslims will likely play the pivotal role in the first effective establishment of Islam in the U.S. This lot is unlikely to fall to our children or grandchildren. They will either be the beneficiaries of our success or the victims of our failure. Indifference toward the future of Muslims in America is not just an offense to the community. Such indifference will lead to irremedi irremediable historical mistakes. The supreme societal obligation that falls upon our generation in building the American Muslim community of the future is to identify the priorities and primary societal obligations that concern us and to acquire the means to meet them. The five operational principles are among the greatest of our resources and constitute a necessary component of eventual success. We ask Allah to accept from all of us. Give us tawfiq. Hmm? Acknowledgements. I am deeply indebted to all who assisted me with this paper, especially in alphabetical order. Ibrahim Abu Sharif, Adnan Arain, Afan Arain, Mazen Aspahi, uh, Sima Daryania, Isam Daryania, Ayat Al-Nuri, Zarina Gruul, 
Asim Kamal, Hisham Mahmoud, you guys might know him, Aftab Malik, Peter Moss, Omar Muzaffar, Nadia Muhajir, Tarek Muhajir, Rami Nashashibi, Asifa Qureshi, Omar Qureshi, Fakhia Rashid, Humar Rashid, Karima Salama, Hina Soda, Ruhi Yunus, and Asra Yusuf al-Din. May Allah accept from all of them. May Allah help us to benefit from this. I really think that this paper is extremely important. It covers so much ground and not that many pages. And uh, it's a really, really important reading for people. Living Islam with Purpose. Living Islam with Purpose. Yeah. Anyone have anything? Or likely, my plan at this point after this is to transition to everything related to visiting the holy places. It's a little bit selfish because <laughs> we have a, we have <laughs> the trip that's coming up, <laughs> the Umrah trip that's coming up at the end of November. But uh, I want to just like explore the history, the stories, the things that are related to the landmarks of all of these places and do them in these sessions so that they can be recorded and they can go on the podcast so that people who are going on this trip or people that go on other trips in the future can inshallah listen to them and benefit from them hopefully and um, uh, and inshallah will also motivate all of us to renew our intention to visit the the Prophet sallam and to visit the house of God and uh, may Allah accept from all of us inshallah Ameen. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Muhammad wa sallam